If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Romans 15 tonight. We're going to wrap up Romans 15, and then it'll leave us with just one more study in the book of Romans. So unfortunate that this study is coming to an end. Uh, We began this, I believe, on uh, week uh, three or four of the year. So uh, not that long of a study, uh, just half the year. So uh, we've had a great time in Romans so far. I hope you have enjoyed it. If you've missed any of them, you can find them archived on our website uh, or just wait around a little while. I'll probably talk about this stuff again sometime. It's that good of a book. It deserves to be mentioned and talked about more and more. Uh, and we will be moving right into 1 Corinthians. So I'm excited uh, to teach through that book. I haven't done that uh, in a long time. Uh, at some point, I've decided that if it's been longer than five years ago, I just decided I didn't do it. So I need uh, it probably probably whatever I said six, seven years ago wasn't really, uh, uh, wasn't really worth that much. So thankfully, I get an opportunity to do it again. Um, so I'm excited about 1 Corinthians. I hope that you'll be uh, excited about that, praying about that. Go ahead and read ahead. will not take us near as long to get through 1 Corinthians, but nonetheless, a very important book that deals with uh, much of the same kinds of, inf- of studies that we've had the last month or so. Very practical, very person-to-person, inside the body of Christ uh, uh, information and, and material. So uh, I think it'll be a great next step to take as we close up the book of Romans, continuing to talk about how to build the church up and how to grow in Christ and grow in our commitment to each other. So stay tuned for that. But we have a couple more weeks in Romans before we move on. Uh, Romans uh, 15, we spent a few, uh, spent one night uh, in the first few chapters and really kind of put a bow on what has been the theme for the last couple of weeks, maybe even the the last month of our time in Romans. Uh, We've been talking about that uh, God has a plan for every saved person that is similar, that is the same, that God's plan for us, as Romans 12 introduced us to this section of Romans, uh, that once we are in Christ, once we are saved, once we are justified and united with Jesus, that God's desire is that we might be sanctified. And, and you, if you've been in church, you kind of know the progression or the kind of the, 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 the layout of, of Christianity that apart from Jesus, we're condemned in Jesus. We are justified, but as we grow in Christ, there's a next step to take. Uh, We are sanctified progressively over time. It's not a one-time event, but a progressive growth that we as Christians will make as we follow Jesus. And Romans 12 through 15 is all about what it looks like to be sanctified. And surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, the focus of these last few chapters has been all about how we serve one another which once you begin to to piece it all together and you begin to understand that sanctification is about becoming more like Jesus. And as you remember and recall what Jesus was like, well, of course, the last few chapters have been about how well we serve one another because that is, of course, what Jesus spent his earthly ministry doing from sunup to sundown. Jesus, in many ways, defined his movement by the way he served people. He uh, especially, served those that were deemed unworthy uh, by the powers that be. Those that were not worthy of recognition or appreciation in his day, he especially served them. And he called his followers, he called you and he called me to serve others as he has served us. And that's really what Romans 15 uh, was all about, opened up to and, and focused on. And, and that's really what the last four chapters have been all about. And, and we last time kind of looked back at some of the teachings of Jesus that Paul was rooting his teachings in 
And one of the cornerstone passages of Jesus's ministry is something we look at a lot. It's Mark chapter 10. In Mark 10, Jesus is observing the disciples um, having a conversation about what it means to be great, what it means to be successful, what it means to be godly. And, and Jesus hears them and he calls to them and he says, you know that those who are considered, of course, he says, you consider them to be great, but I don't know about it. Those that are considered rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them or make it well known to their subjects. I'm in charge. You listen to me. I have more money than you, more power than you, more you know, ability than you. I'm in charge, so you must submit to me. He says, those that are great in the kingdoms of man, those that are powerful and successful in the kingdoms of man, they love to gloat about it and boast about it over and against those that are beneath them. He says, I know what you guys think my kingdom is like. I know what you guys think I'm building. You guys think I'm building a movement or an institution just like every other one that belongs to this world. You guys think that as you follow me and get more like me and take more higher positions under me, you guys think that to be great in my kingdom is like what it means and takes to be great in the kingdoms of this world. I know what you're thinking and I hear your conversations. He says, you know that those that are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they exercise authority and, and they that are great, they let you know it and they wear it proudly. But it shall not be so among you. Some of the most jarring words that Jesus ever spoke. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you or in my kingdom must be your servant. Whoever would be first or whoever wants to be the greatest of them all must be a slave of them all. And here's his explanation. For even the son of man came not to be served. At this point, they still think he's gonna be king and he's gonna have an ivory palace and he's gonna you know, lay back and he's gonna rule and they're all gonna you know, relish in his riches and they're gonna put all the people that they were enemies of and enemies of them, they're gonna put them under their uh, authority. And Jesus says, you guys think that's why I've come. That's not why I've come. Stay tuned, I'll show you why I've come. I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And of course, at this time when Jesus said this, the disciples thought, Jesus, are, are you just setting us up to fail? I mean, if you're going to build something that's going to be future-proof, if you're going to build something that's going to be successful, if you're going to build a kingdom or any kind of movement that's going to make a noise in this world, and, and, and that's the way it's going to operate, Jesus, we are going to be laughed at. We're going to be left behind from the rest of the world. Nobody is ever going to give us any recognition. We are going to be forgotten about no sooner than we take the next step. <laughs> Little did they know what was actually gonna happen. Of course, they actually get on board with this and they actually begin to understand that this is indeed what it means to be great and that service, that life of service is what it means to be sanctified. As we get closer to Jesus, we realize that we would become like Jesus in Romans 12 through 15 and, and really the passages bookend, uh, 12 and 15 bookend uh, what's in between. Uh, that A life of service is what every Christian is called to because if we're becoming more like Jesus, we will do similar things to Jesus and our lives will look like Jesus. And if you wanna look like Jesus, you must do what Jesus did and again, he gave his life 
for others. We've cross-referenced these passages with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, how he prayed the night before he was arrested. We looked at those two passages last week, how in Matthew 5, uh, he talks about how effective we are at communicating and transferring mercy and grace to those around us, uh, to our neighbors, not just those that we love, but those that we don't love, right? He says, you've heard it said of old, love those who love you. But I say, love those who are against you and persecute you and, and, and despitefully use you. In John 17, the night before Jesus was arrested, or the night he was arrested, uh, Jesus prayed uh, about how our sanctification has everything to do with how well we serve each other. And this was, and, and the reason why he prayed about this is because the future of the movement was dependent on how well we obeyed him in this area. A particular line that stands out from John 17 that's gonna launch us into the rest of Romans 15 is this way that he closes the prayer. He says, Father, my prayer is that they may all be one, united. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe. So he says, it's a big deal. It's crucial that they get this, God. And of course, God knew it, but he was praying for us. And he wrote, and this was written down so we might would see what was on his mind the night he was going to be arrested. He wasn't worried about himself. He was worried or he was concerned that we might would take hold of this. And he says, Father, my prayer is that they might be united together. And the reason why it's so important that they be united together around this agenda and around this mission, because if they are not united, if they are not all on the same page, if they are not all working together on this, around this mission and around this agenda, the world will not know, the world will not believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Now, here's what is important about that verse. The glory, that does not mean we have it automatically. What he's saying there is that we have it available to us. What is the glory that God has given us? Glory in the Bible uh, can be honor, it can be interpreted or it can be translated as fame. But I think a better word there or a better way to understand the glory that God's given us is the brightness or the light that he's given us. Uh, Glory refers to God's brightness and God's fame and God's recognition. And that God has offered us a brightness that will not fade that you and I often see what makes the world bright, what makes the world stand out, and we think, I need some of that. I, I, want, I, wanna, I want that because that makes them bright and that makes them glow. But Jesus said, if you really want to stand out in my kingdom, I've offered you this glory. And it's particularly referring to unity. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. And and he closes the prayer like this. Father, next slide. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am. And and he's not meaning literally, what he means there is that they be on the same page as me. Have you ever asked somebody, hey, are you with me? 
Hey, it doesn't mean you're with me where I'm at in the same building. Of course, he's in heaven, right? He's saying, I want them to be with me. I want to look at them and I want them to see me and look me in the eyes. And I want to be able to say, are you with me? And I want them to be able to give me this. Yeah, without a doubt, we are with you, Jesus. We have seen your glory. We have seen the brightness that makes you stand out. And we want to be known for that same glory. And again, his prayer is that we would be united. Now, I bring this up because Jesus, Paul has been teaching us about serving each other. And he opened up Romans 15 talking about how we should seek the well-being of the other, how we should, we who are strong should lift up those who are weak, those that we consider not on the same page as us, those that we consider to be not hitting on all cylinders, or those that we consider to be weak, or those that we think should pick up their own weight and, and take care of themselves, and they should straighten up, and they should fix that. He says, we who are strong should serve them, and, and literally Paul says, we should please them and not please ourselves, so that they may see that we are for them more than we are for ourselves because we are about building up a body and building up a team. It's like a group of athletes on the field together. If it's, it's more than just the guy driving the ball down the court, it's his team that matters or her team that matters that you and I must realize that it's not just about what we are here for, but it's about those around us. And it's only when we are united together that we begin to really make a difference for the kingdom of God. And we ourselves don't get too far ahead of the ball and we don't make it about us and not about God because the, the, the risk is that it becomes our glory and not God's glory. Unity is a word that is often misunderstood and ill-defined, but it's clear that whatever it means, Jesus wants us to be united. And he believed, as Paul believed and Paul taught, unity is achieved through the church's mutual submission to one another. And that's what Paul's been teaching us, that we are united when we mutually submit to each other. As in, we are in a submission competition. I submit to you, submit to me, we all submit to each other. So there's never an occasion where somebody is, you know, the higher, higher on the totem pole or, you know, pulling more weight. We are all submitting to one another. And there's never a reason why I'm not going to submit to them. Because do you know what they believe? I mean, did you see what they were wearing? Did you see what, oh, do you know what they were listening to when they got in their car, right? You know, they were in church doing that and they were in their car doing that. I mean, there's a hundred reasons why you can say, I don't have to submit to them. Paul says, you can choose to not submit to them all you want to. But if you are the one not submitting, it's not their weakness that disqualifies your church. It's your arrogance. And again, that's not my words, it's Paul's words. So that's why it's so important that we remain in this humble place. When it comes to unity, or when it comes to the nature of unity, I think tonight's text and message is going to help us gain a better, clearer understanding. And there's a misconception about unity. And I want to clear that up. Unity is not limited to the idea or reality of us all getting along. Unity is not the idea that we all have to get along, that we all have to be humming the same tune, looking the same way, dressing the same way, singing the same song, doing all the stuff exactly the same way. Unity is not limited to, it's great if we all get along. I mean, who wouldn't want to get along? It's great if we can all get along, but it's not limited to, and it's not held back by a reality in which we don't get along. Because the reality of it is, we're not always all going to get along. And back in Romans 12, Paul even said that according to what 
lies in you live peaceably, but hey, that's not always reality. So clearly unity is not simply the idea that we all get along, even if that's an ideal, it's not necessary. What is necessary when it comes to unity, and listen to this if you don't hear anything else, and I'll, we'll root it in scripture. To achieve unity, it's not that we all have to get along together, but that we all go along together. The great misconception, people walk away from the church because, oh, they're just not united there. Oh, they just don't get along. They just don't like me. And I'm like, listen, nobody's ever, people are, you know, you can fake it, but nobody's ever going to get along completely 100%. And that's not, thankfully, that's not what unity is. Unity is when we collectively decide, I might not get along with you all the time, but I am going to go along with you. That as in, I understand that I am on a mission. We are on a mission. We are a part of the kingdom of God, the movement of God, the church of Jesus. It's bigger than us. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than any of us. It's more than the sum of its parts. And because of that, I may not ever get along with you, but I choose to work with you and work alongside of you because we have to understand there is a mission and there is a glory that is bigger than us. So lock your arms with me, whether you like me or not, whether we get along all the time or not, we are gonna go along and go forward together because this song is not about me. We never sing a song about how great we are and there's a reason for that. Because it's not about us. And we all sit in our own corners and say, well, we just don't, I just don't, we just don't get along. Of course you don't get along. You're people. <laughs> you don't get along with the people you live with. Come on, don't pretend. Maybe you do. I do. <laughs> we may not get along, but we can decide. We can choose. We can swallow whatever we've got in our throats that we might think is, I don't know about that. Now, it doesn't mean we dispassionately serve others and just go through the motions. That's not the point. If our eyes are on him, we serve one another with passion and we will delight in doing that. But what we'll discover is if we pre-decide to go along together, to go forward together. We will find that getting along together isn't that hard. It actually becomes second nature. You know, what I've learned as a pastor and what I think every pastor, every church leader has to learn, you can't wait until everybody gets to the point to, the, to get, get, to the, get to the point of naturally, hey, we're all, you know, we all figured this out. You can't wait for everybody to kind of get on the same page. You have to point to the direction in our destination and leave the getting along and the cooperating up to the Lord. And the, 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 the imperative on every individual is we have been invited to and we are obligated to participate in the Great Commission. And we've all been gathered to be a part of this commission, to follow Jesus' own mission, to reach the ends of the earth with his gospel. People tell me, well, I just can't go to a church because I can't find a place that I fit in. Here's the reality. You are under the obligation of the great commission. You better find somebody of imperfect people and make it work. 
And that's the kind of, you know, that's, that's the crass, you know, uh, not necessarily understanding pastor uh, in me coming out. But that's the reality. That's the gospel. That you are, we are under the Great Commission. And when we begin to see Jesus as brighter and bigger and better than anything that we'll ever deal with in this life, all of a sudden we begin to see, hey, I've got to get on board. I've got to start being faithful to this mission. And I need a team to help me accomplish it. In the days of the New Testament, no place was considered more off the beaten path, more unlikely to be reached than Rome. Perhaps that's why Paul so longed to visit there, believing that if Rome could be breached with the gospel, if the heart of the empire could be stirred and impacted by the gospel, no doubt the whole world could hear about Jesus sooner than not. So Paul became obsessed with Rome. Before he ever got there, he began to ask people, hey, are there any Christians in Rome? Are there any Christians in Rome? Are there any believers in Rome? I really believe that if we could just get to Rome with the gospel, we can actually accomplish the Great Commission quicker and sooner than we would otherwise. So Paul was betting on this and he was willing to take big risk and bold moves in order to get to Rome, in order to help this church that he heard about get off the ground. So if you ever studied the book of Acts, as we did a while back, you recall that Paul was playing 3D chess in the, in the book of Acts making radical, crazy decisions that people thought were reckless, but Paul knew, hey, this is gonna get me to the right place in front of the right person that's gonna actually get me arrested, but I need to be arrested here so I can go to court there so that they can send me to Rome later. Hey, Paul had it all figured out. And people were saying, Paul, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't go there. Don't go back to Jerusalem. Don't go, don't appeal to Caesar. Don't, don't do that, Paul. You don't have to do that. And Paul says, I know I don't have to. But the quickest way for me to get to Rome is to go down this path. And, and if you read the details and you hear the history behind it, Rome was becoming a little bit wary of the Jewish people at this time. So Paul knew that he had a very small and narrow window to work through to get there. Acts 19, the, the scripture says that after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia, which is Greece, and go to Jerusalem saying this, after, after I have been there, I must see Rome. So Paul had this vision. He says, I, I, I know, Paul, you mean you're gonna go from Greece back to Judea, then to Rome? He said, yeah, it's gotta work this way. Because he knew the behind the scenes stuff that we just kind of are piecing it together as we, we go along. Later on in chapter 23, he reveals that Jesus stood by him and said, you must testify in Rome. So Paul knew I've got to get to Rome. Now, we find out that along the way, he met two Christians that were from Rome. Two Jewish Christians, Aquila and Priscilla, husband and wife. Rome had actually exiled Jews from the imperial city because there was some infighting in the Jewish communities because many Jews were defecting to Christianity. And a lot of the Jews were upset that some of their loved ones were turning to Jesus and they didn't believe he was the Messiah. So we all know the drama there. Uh, Rome began uh, investigating these communities and was actually forcing some of the Jews to leave their communities so Paul heard about the Roman church and how it was disrupted by all this drama and all this tension and all this he said, she said, what about the Jews, what about the Gentiles? So all that kind of worked together and that's why Paul especially is mindful of the cooperation and the unity and the mutual submission when he writes to the Roman Christians. Regardless of all that history though, Paul believed that Rome, specifically a thriving church in Rome, was key in taking the Great Commission to the next level. And his amb ambition the whole time, he longed for God to receive the utmost glory and he wants that to rub off on us. So 
So here's what Paul would, here's what he would ask you and what he would ask me. You're never gonna find the perfect church and you're not ever gonna find a church wherein you get along with everybody all the time and you're never gonna agree on everything and you're never always gonna like the other person's idea. But here's what we should all agree on. God deserves the utmost glory possible. That is accomplished by reaching more people with the gospel. And we who have received the gospel must collectively decide together we are gonna go forward with a goal, with a mission of glorifying God because God's plan since the beginning has been reaching more people with Jesus. So I bring all that up and I preface all this because in Romans 15, verse eight through 13, Paul is going to tell us why he has just been teaching on mutual submission and mutual service and loving one another. He says in Romans 15, verse eight, now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the Father. So his entire example is that Jesus submitted himself to the Jews, but Jesus didn't just die for the Jews. He died for the Gentiles as well. Again, he refers to the promise made to the patriarchs, the Jewish patriarchs. Verse nine, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy And he's gonna quote some scriptures. So Paul says, I've been telling you guys this because Jesus literally gave his life up so that God's plan for the ages might transpire. That God promised the Jewish fathers that he would bring all of the earth under his reign. And he's gonna quote Moses, David, and Isaiah across the next few verses and saying this was always God's plan. For this reason, I will confess to you, as is written, for this reason, I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. So that's a a, a prophecy that the Jewish people would uh, confess God among the Gentiles and bring the Gentiles, bring the nations under God's name. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So again, God always had a desire for the most people, for all people, all nations to come under him. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you peoples. And the reason why Paul is doing this is because the Old Testament, we think it's God's covenant with the Jews. All the while, all throughout the Old Testament, there's these prophecies that not only the Jews would worship God, but also the rest of the nations. And, and Gentiles is a Hebrew word that literally just means the nations, So it's everybody else. Again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse. He shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles shall hope. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what Paul wants is, what he wants is that all of us would understand this is God's desire. This is what God wants. This is what Jesus came to earth to accomplish. Moses wrote about it. David wrote about it. Isaiah wrote about it. God's desire through the ages to reach all nations, to bring all nations under his reign and under his care. Now, I want to just want to spend a minute unpacking something that's significant here. Paul 
was a Jew. Remember back in Romans 9, 10, and 11, how Paul talked about how proud of a Jew he was, how God still had plans for Israel, how Israel was still a very important part of God's earthly plans. So Paul, as a Jew, very much still a proud Jew who believed that the Jewish people were a significant part of God's earthly plans then, now, forever. So he says, I'm not, don't, don't take me as saying the Jews are not still, uh, you know, don't, don't take me as trying to underscore what, or, you know, downplay what they accomplished and what they, how they were a part of God's plan. So what this makes it even more powerful, perhaps controversial that Paul's saying this. He confesses that even though God's covenant with Abraham would always make Israel and the Jewish people a special people above the rest, he says God's focus was never on a single nation for the sake of a single nation. His goal from the very beginning always was the whole world. If Paul, a Jew, says that about Israel's relationship with the rest of the world, let me say, let me say a word delicately if I may, to us at our point in history. It is the nature of every nation to develop a complex that it's more important and superior than the others. But let us never confuse the nature, that nature with a godly nature or a godly ambition. There's a difference in being thankful and wanting the best for your nation or your people and idolizing or assuming that any one country is greater than the others. If Paul, a Jew, declares that ancient Israel was a means to reaching the whole earth, how much more should we as citizens of a lesser nation or any lesser nation, how much more should we understand how we factor into the rest of the world's plans and God's desire for the rest of the world? My point is this, we exist, not America, we, as in the church that happens to be in America, we exist to build up the global church. I know people don't like the word global because there's politics behind that, but, but this, is, this is Bible. This is Jesus we're talking about. We exist to build up the global, international, universal church. That's why we exist. That's why risen church exists. That's why any local church exists. Wherever it's at in the world, we exist to usher in the kingdom of heaven. Let us never forget lest we miss out on the eternal structure that God is trying to build because we're too busy securing something that's temporary. I know that's not popular. I know that's uncomfortable at times to think about the contrary agendas. But if we want to be in line with God's plans for the nations, we will get on board with them as quickly as possible. And, and again, Paul, a Jew, is writing this. We wouldn't be written into the story if the Jews had not put their personal and national prosperity and prominence, if they had put their personal and national prosperity and prominence above their global mission, we wouldn't be here. Do you get that? And listen, Peter didn't want to. Peter said, hey, I'm not going into Cornelius' house. He's a Gentile. I've never been in a Gentile's house before. I don't like them. I don't want them to be a part of this. And then Peter stood up at the church meeting a couple of days later and said, guys, can y'all believe it? I went into a Gentile's house. If I went into a Gentile's house, why should any of you refuse? Because y'all know me. I'm as prejudiced as they come. I was, I confess that. I repented of that. I'm no longer that way, but I was that way. 
And what did he say there in Acts? Who am I to stand in God's way? We wouldn't be here had they put their, pro- their own personal prosperity and prominence above their global mission. So think about it, how in their time, they barely knew what was going on down the street. Now we know what's going on all around the world. We can watch other nations' news channels. We can look on the internet, right? In their day and age, they didn't know what was going on down the street, let alone around the world. Yet their minds were so much on the whole world. Isn't it remarkable how when you read the Bible, they're always talking about the whole world and they literally didn't know what was going on next door. They didn't have technology like we have. They didn't know what was going on in the the neighboring county, let alone the neighboring country. Yet their minds were always on the whole world. You know why? Because God has always been a global God. And God has always desired a global people. And they were always aware of that. In our day, we are privileged to know what's going on around the world. And in our country, we are privileged to see how many different people around the world are even represented here. So we must rejoice and be glad to be a part of this kingdom, which spans generation and includes all nations. I hope this will spur us towards unity at all the more within our own local body so that we might show God a glimpse of what he desires across the nations. Let us be willing to go to the nations if God opens the door. As members of the most mission-minded, Great Commission-wired association of churches, we have access to teams and groups, and we need to pray, not just about supporting those missions, but joining those missions. Maybe you didn't know this, but our local association provides gospel and social aid on foot to, parts, to all parts of the world every year uh, in a non-COVID world, but the last year and in the year to come. Uh, our association sends people to Latin America, to Brazil, to Peru, to Mexico. We send people to South Africa every year with the gospel and with the kingdom agenda on our minds and on, on, on our agenda. It would do us all so good so much good to realize that God's kingdom is bigger than Lincoln, bigger than North Carolina, bigger than America, bigger than our economy, bigger than our politics. He's not dependent on our dollar. He's not dependent on our politicians. He's been building towards this day in history for thousands of years. And when we focus in on that reality, we find a joy and a peace and a power that will truly revolutionize our lives. In verse 13, Paul, his prayer is that we would be filled with the joy and the peace and the power that comes along with realizing the bigger picture. You know, I'm convinced that a lot of us were so temperamental, we're even malnourished spiritually because we've yet to focus on the true mission of the church. Let me say this delicately. When I pay attention to what's going on in churches and I hear people fuss about stuff in churches, I'm thinking, do you realize what our job is and what our mission is? And we're going to let that, we're going to let that little thing keep us from moving forward? Like, do, do you really, and, and again, I think the, the big, the reason, I think a lot of us, the reason why we're so temperamental is, is we're, we're malnourished. Now, I didn't have to have a baby to realize this, but it helps me. A lot of us are, are still infants, in our faith. And, and Paul writes about this. Hebrews it talks about this. Peter talks about this. A lot of us are like infants being held. We don't care about the rest of the world because we don't have to care about the rest of the world. We're a baby and a baby only cares about itself, right? That's the luxury of being a baby. But when you get older, you realize there's a bigger reality. And it's for our own best that we plug into that greater reality. 
But come on, a lot of us Christians, we are still infants. Paul writes to the Corinthians and, 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 and he says, hey guys, I can't move on from milk to solid food because you guys, you guys are still babies. And the reason why I know you're still babies is because you only want to talk about you and what makes you happy and what you want to do. And I can't even get you to the bigger picture because you don't realize it. Look at what he wrote in Corinthians. But our brothers could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not, are you not of the flesh and behaving in a human way? And of course, that's what humans do. We behave like humans. But Paul says, hey, we can move forward. You know, humans wait on everybody to get along. But you don't have to wait on everybody to get along. You just got to wait on everybody to say, hey, I see, a, I see our mission. I see our agenda. I see our goal. And you know what? I might not ever get along with you, but I can choose to say that there, there's a bigger picture that I need to focus on and let's do it together. Why are we here for? For God's glory. My light's burning out. Your light's burning out. Our light is burning out. Our light is growing dim. So let's quit wasting our time on our lights. You know, the reason the church often gets bogged down with drama and why Christians aren't truly engaged is that we've never taken hold of the true power that God wants to work through us. And that's why we, when we begin to work with his, in his greater kingdom and on his great commission, we begin to see the bigger picture. Look at verse 13, 14. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all power, able to admonish one another. He says, I believe you guys are able to accomplish this greater mission. Nevertheless, brethren, I've written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God. He says, hey, if you wanna know why I've spent five, four chapters on this same subject, it's because, hey, we need that reminder, don't we? That I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. For I will dare not speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. So say, I'm not talking about myself. I'm here to glorify Jesus. And mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Elysium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I've made it my aim and my goal to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and to those who have not heard shall understand. So here's what Paul is saying. I'm, I, you know, I'm not going to just wait for it all to work out and build on somebody else's foundation. I, I'm willing to roll my sleeves up and do the work where it might not be always the easiest place to do the work. I think every local church needs to hear this. And even the bigger local churches need to hear this because it's so easy to say, well, hey, you know, let's just hit your wagon and, and, and let's just let somebody else do it. Paul felt fortunate to be a part of fulfilling the plan of God. I tell you, if only we had this mentality that Paul did, this mindset that was, so, that was also deferring to and seeking out more of God's plans. I think a word or a concept that describes Paul's ambition is this word or this phrase, Christian maximalist. Paul was thrilled and overwhelmed to get to be a part of God's activity and he wanted to maximize every opportunity, every day for God's glory. 
He didn't feel as if God's plan for his life were an obstacle. And I think the really the dividing line between those who truly serve God and those who don't is this idea. Are we maximalist or minimalist? As in, are we trying to, are we trying just to do the little as we can and just kind of get by? Because maybe there's a verse for that. Or are we trying to maximize this opportunity because we see the bigger picture? And it comes down to, do you see God's plans as a burden or a blessing? Do you see his plans for you and his bigger picture as an inconvenience or are they an incentive for you? Do you grumble at the idea of getting along with people because you see the bigger picture that You don't see the bigger picture or do you see that, hey, I'm willing to do the work. I'm willing to work alongside. I'm willing to come alongside because I see that God is our goal and God is our focus. Paul to heart for God's plan, mainly because he was well aware of it and as a student of it. That's why it's so important to read the Bible and submit ourselves to the Bible when we see the bigger picture and that bigger goal uh, that that is leading us and, and, and drawing us, we will stay on mission. The best way to stay enthused about it and engaged about God's mission is to stay little before him, as in stay humble, stay small. Don't, don't, you don't have to be big and be recognized and be somebody. Just stay little. Stay, stay unknown and stay just one of a bunch of other people right before Jesus. Stay little and get as long, alongside as, as many people as you can. Get in the local church and stay beside people and stay alongside people and say, hey, w- w- let's all focus on him. And when somebody knocks you down a peg, you know what? Be glad you didn't have to be knocked down by somebody bigger. Relish in that smallness. Relish in that anonymity. Relish in that body you're a part of. When we're all in tune with his plans, we reach our full potential as servants of God. Paul mentions that he was, faith, he was focused on doing the work God had called him to do. You know, God is doing a unique work in every one of us. And when we realize that his true desires for all of us, when we realize that he's invited us to be a part of something so much bigger, we will begin to interpret and leverage our circumstances for his glory. What if every day we made it our prayer, we made it our goal, Lord, may someone who hasn't heard hear through me. May you take my life and use my life to make much of your name. You see, when we have this maximal mentality, when we have a global focus, we realize there are people right beside us who have never heard. It's all about our posture and our approach and our being best positioned for him. Listen to Paul wrap this chapter up from 22 to 33. For this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you, but now no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire that many, these many years to come to you, wherever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you, for I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. Now, but now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Acacia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem." It pleased them indeed, and they, are, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. 
Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe and that, they, that, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and be refreshed together with you. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Two things that I think we can pull from this closing passage. Focusing on verse 27, Paul mentions that a part of moving forward and a part of working together is that we who are spiritually blessed will begin to look at our material things differently. This is a really sermon into itself. We'll get to it later on. Paul believed that the spiritually blessed will use their material surplus to communicate gratitude and reflect God's generosity. So if you want to know a place to start in your own communities, your material blessings, if, you've been, if you begin to grow spiritually and you begin to see the bigger picture, we'll realize that our material blessings really only serve one purpose in the kingdom of God. And our flesh does not want to hear this, but here's what God says about our material blessings. We who are spiritual will realize that our material surplus is really a means to an end of communicating our gratitude and reflecting God's generosity. This might be abstract for us to hear, but Paul believed that all material goods were simply tools to be leveraged by the saved. So he says, you want to know how you can begin to serve your community? You, you can begin to, to share God's goodness and God's generosity with those around you that may not know, know about God? Look at the things that God has given you materially and realize that they are, they are a tool for the spiritual. Paul wrote to the people at Ephesus in 1 Timothy, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or set their hopes on uncertain riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And, and here's how to truly enjoy those things. Do good, be rich in good works, be generous, ready to share. Storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future, to take hold of what truly is life. Paul says those material things are a way to communicate goodness by doing good for others. By doing this, we're letting it be known that the material is a means of serving the spiritual. Now, why do I bring this up to wrap it all together? We started this whole conversation off on what seems to be the way it works and what truly is the way God works. We've got to bring that material into submission to the spiritual. We've got to bring our own wills and our own desires in submission to God's desire and God's mission. And this is just a simple way of understanding that. Last thing Paul shared in that passage is that he was truly excited about getting in this church community. Can you imagine that? Paul, think about how many church services Paul went to. He started churches. He was in churches every day of his life. And he literally says, I can't wait to come to your church. Man, pretty amazing that he had that hunger and that thirst to be a part of a community of God's people. When we divest ourselves of material dependence, we develop a greater appreciation and affinity for the spiritual, especially the gift of the church, the gathering, the fellowship, the mutual upbuilding. And this all goes back to our approach. Do we see the mission God's called us on as an obstacle? Or do we see it as our true desire and destination? Paul rejoiced in that he was able to participate in something so much bigger than himself. He lived with the goal of maximizing God's glory, and as a byproduct, he could see a life of maximum good and joy for himself. You know, you and I, church, you and I are invited to walk the same path every single day. To those who walk in it until the very end, guarantee for themselves a life of unlimited joy, unlimited peace, 
in a privileged experience with the power of God, as verse 13 told us. Paul would invite you and me to pray together that we might keep our eyes on Jesus and our hearts on his mission. This is how Jesus' saving work continues in us. It keeps us from spooling our lives on lesser things. And I, I say this all the time, Jesus saved my soul, but the church saved my life. And it continues to save my life because it keeps me from getting distracted and spooling my life on something so much inferior and so much less important. Thank God for the movement God has given us a privilege to be a part of and may you and I every single day make that commitment. Let's go forward together. We're on a mission. We need each other. Let's love each other and let's love our Lord together and we will accomplish this mission one step at a time. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for the local church. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for giving us a place in it, helping us find a place in your family. Lord, thank you for each and every one of these saints that are here tonight. Thank you for making them a part of your family and a part of my family here on earth. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you and help us to stay focused on maximizing the opportunity. Help us never to grow weary of doing good, but help us to see that you are at work in all things and you, we all are uniquely wired and uniquely positioned and uniquely designed to serve you and to make a difference for you. One voice at a time, one life at a time, one day at a time for the one Savior above us all. We ask this in his awesome and mighty name. Amen.